When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 82. Today's episode is all about the healing power of silence. So there's this study out of Duke University, Ernka Christie, they look at mice and they put them in those little anechoic chambers you were talking about. So limiting all this outside interference, outside noise, they piped in like little pup sounds, they piped in Mozart, <laughs> and then they also used, as is often the case, silence as sort of a baseline. And it was silence where they noticed a sustained cell growth in, in the neurons in the mice. So that this idea that there was a good type of stress, this positive type of stress where it's an unfamiliar thing, but you're growing into that. It's really one of the key insights we found in this book is that the simple act of listening to silence regenerates the brain. If you're new to Mind Love, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And here's your personal reminder to tap that little subscribe button. That way, you'll get reminders to give your mind a little love when new episodes release. And if you love the show, consider leaving a five-star review. These help me entice all the amazing guests that you hear on the show. How often do you sit in silence? In the world that we live in, silence is pretty hard to come by. For the first time in history, we actually have little personal devices that go everywhere we do, so we can be reached through phone call, email, text message, social notifications. And when those aren't dinging for our attention, most of us have a compulsive habit of picking up those phones and finding something else that needs our attention. We scroll through Facebook and Instagram to hear and see our friends' opinions. Or we browse Twitter to see a thousand different takes on one topic in a matter of minutes. We tune into Netflix to forget about it all for a few hours. But think about the reality of what that really means. For the first time in history, we have a fraction of the time to actually think our own thoughts. Have you ever closed a social app and for the next 15 minutes or so, you can just hear the last like three things you read almost ringing in your mind, just repeating as though the phrase is bouncing from wall to wall in your brain? It happens to me almost every time, which I think is my mind's way of saying, hey, look at the effect this is having. This person's opinion is practically searing into your subconscious. If we don't allow ourselves the silence, how do we really even know what we think? How do we know what our own opinion actually is versus whatever we automatically just start regurgitating from the sources of information we dwell in? I often hear people say that they don't like being alone with their thoughts. I actually used to say that in my early 20s. It felt kind of scary in there. I've noticed it's actually become a pretty common thing for people to say. And I think I might notice it more because it's become a sort of trigger of compassion for me because I remember what it felt like to feel that way. But now in the silence, alone with my thoughts has become one of my favorite places to be. In that silence is where my thoughts untangle. 
In the silence is where I found my voice. In that silence is where I started to form a relationship with myself. Some of the greatest minds in history have revered the silence. Lao Tzu said, silence is a source of great strength. Charles de Gaulle said, silence is the ultimate weapon of power. Euripides said, silence is true wisdom's best reply. And Benjamin Disraeli said that silence is the mother of truth. I believe there's a time and a place for silence. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be still and listen. Leonardo da Vinci said that nothing strengthens authority so much as silence. And I think we all have our own personal idea of what that means and when recently it has applied. So yeah, on the flip side, there are times when speaking up is a moral obligation. But even in those times, the part of you that screams, speak up, this isn't fair, this isn't right, that's the part of you that strengthens when you have more time to yourself in the silence. The ability to discern your inner voice between your programming comes from spending time alone without all the noise, without everyone's opinions, without the news or your friends telling you what and who to care about. It's in the silence that we find ourselves. And if the silence can help you know yourself better, what other treasure does it hold? Well, that's what we're talking about today, the golden power of silence. And our guests are Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Justin Zorn is an author and policymaker who served as both a strategist and a meditation teacher in the U.S. Congress. And Lee Mars is a leadership coach and collaboration consultant, specializing in work with scientists, engineers, and creatives. So three key things we will learn are the science of why the silence is essential for our bodies and minds, why virtually all the world's spiritual traditions honor silence as a path to truth, and practical approaches to finding little moments of silence, as well as deeper immersion. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Justin Zorn and Lee Mars to the show. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having us, Melissa. You guys wrote a book about silence, and I really want to make the joke that everyone else has made about wanting to open it up and expecting it to be a bunch of blank pages. (laughs) Apparently, I'm not as clever as I thought I was. But where I'd like to start is, given you're writing a book about all these benefits of silence, 
The opposite of that would be the noise. How do you define that noise that we're trying to counteract? Yeah, well, we decided to define noise in a few ways because we figured we had some creative license. And so we, of course, think about the auditory noise that is measured in decibels that we experience in our ears and when it's loud enough, sometimes in our whole being and body, nervous system and all. So that's one level of noise that we look at is auditory noise. And then it seems like a book in this day and age would be incomplete if it didn't address informational noise, just the mass proliferation of information available through our screens for sure, but just the the volume of information available on any given topic even. So that's informational noise. And then for us, Anyway, it wouldn't be as exciting a book or topic to write about if we didn't look at the internal landscape, our minds, and internal noise. So that can look like a lot of chatter. And I noticed you had Ethan Cross on recently, and he's a hero. He speaks he speaks brilliantly. And when, when that book came out, we were like, hooray, <laughs> someone's <laughs> going to take that on head on. Internal chatter, rumination, worries about the future, past, present, all this type of intrusive thinking and stuff that gets in our way. So we look at noise on those three different levels. On any of those levels, it's about unwanted distraction, you know, our goals, interference with our goals. And that term goals can kind of mean a very achievery sort of resume building kind of sensibility. But what we mean is really clear perception and the ability to intend what we spend our precious lives um, doing. So whether that's like the noise in our open office that doesn't allow us to focus on our work or the unwanted distraction that comes through our phones just as a friend is sharing some really important news about their lives, maybe something difficult, or we're replaying a conflict we've had with somebody in the midst of a really precious moment, like when our child is on stage for the first time and playing the important role of Cyclops, (laughs) and we are preoccupied with the thoughts knocking around in our mind. So that's how we define noise. What would you add, Justin? Anything? That's a really good overview, Lee. And and Melissa, I'm really glad you mentioned the, isn't it just a bunch of blank pages joke? Because I got to say, we're a little self-conscious about that, especially at first, like, oh, we're, we want to create all this reverence for silence. And here we are writing an almost 400 page book. And what we came to on that is really that you know, there's no such thing as an expert in silence. It's something so subjective. And what we wanted to do in this book is explore what silence means for people at the level of technical experts in neuroscience and other fields, but people in busy, frantic, urgent lives, how to find clarity and renewal through silence. So we thought we could have, on one hand, try to write a really kind of wispy, book that contains a whole lot of silence. And and we certainly do bring the reader to experiences of silence in the book. But ultimately, this book is, is an ode to silence. And it's also at some level, too, a manifesto through the science and through the economics and through the organizational design and psychology and other fields as to why we need silence in our world right now, why silence is important for our physical health and our mental clarity, and also our ability to solve seemingly intractable problems in our own lives and in the world today. Yeah. What I love about your book is that it's not just a bunch of 
definitions and why there's a lot of stories in it. And it reminds me of when I was taking a coaching course on how to be a coach a long time ago. And one of the biggest things they came back to is that the best service that you could do for a client is to tell them stories or use metaphors so that they connect those dots in their mind because it's going to mean something a little bit different to each person. And so when you're explaining concepts by giving a story, then each person might interpret that a little bit differently, but in a way that's the most meaningful to them. So in a way, it's it's something where you can you can take it and then reflect on it with silence. So I love that. But you also say that right now, especially in this time, that noise is our most celebrated addiction. And it's interesting because as we know, almost every spiritual tradition has pays some sort of reverence to silence and stillness. So how did this come to be that we're celebrating the opposite of what could be so profound in our lives? Hmm. It's a really important question. You know, we write in the book about this idea of noise as our most celebrated addiction at a few different levels. I mean, there's the deep personal level to it, wherein psychologically, noise fills the space so we don't have to face ourselves. There's a uh, quote from an old French polymath philosopher. Blaise Pasquale, to paraphrase, he said, all of humanity's problems can be boiled down to a human being's inability to sit in a room alone. So there's the way that noise is an addiction because it diverts us and distracts us away from really needing to deal with what's often really going on for ourselves. But we also, in the book, zoom out and we look at some of the broader social and political drivers of this kind of addiction to noise in our society. We talk a lot about how we tend to measure progress as whole countries and societies. We often use measures of productivity like gross domestic product, the measure of the total production in a country. And that's how we measure, you know, whether a president or a prime minister or an economy is doing well. But, you know, GDP goes up if you chop down a forest and sell the wood at Home Depot, but it doesn't count the value of the forest that's left intact. And likewise, GDP goes up if you chop up human attention and monetize it and you turn it into eyeballs on an advertisement on Facebook, but there's no value within GDP in our kind of foremost metrics of societal progress. There's no measure that we assign to pristine human attention. So that time immersed in nature or that time of uninterrupted, focused playtime with your kids or the time in a flow state playing basketball with your friends, you know, any of these experiences that can't be monetized doesn't count as a plus according to our measurements. So in this book, we talk about at a personal level, the importance of appreciating silence, the importance of appreciating this pristine attention for our own well-being, but also the importance at a societal level, at a systemic level of valuing the silence. You posed a question that was one of those that I actually put the book down and sat in stillness kind of thinking about. You said, if everything is vibration and that's the nature of reality, can anything be perfectly still? Is there even such a thing as silence? And I'm curious, what conclusion did you come to from that? We came to the conclusion that in a literal sense, 
perhaps not. And we're not the ones to really answer that anyway. There are definitely some people who would be great at that, whether they find some pocket of silence way out in space or, you know, sound engineers and folks like that would, I'm sure, have a great time <laughs> taking that on a long ride. And we did think a lot about it. It seemed important. And then we sort of let that go. Because whether or not that's true, there's absolutely, without question, the experience of silence. It's one we've lived. It's one you've lived. You know, it's it's one that's actually innate to being human. It's one that we'll recognize if we give ourselves the time and space to do so. We like to talk about this book as a way in which we get to remember silence. And the reader gets to remember something they already know. It's a very coach-like stance on this. Like, you know, you know your way. Just give yourself a little space to find it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard. And sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I'm reminded of just understanding that I, I'm trying to think back to what, where I learned this, but there's something basically that zero point, our baseline doesn't necessarily have to be at zero completely because we've never understood that anyways. So even if it's just at whatever baseline that is where silence, I remember learning about there's, there's specific rooms that actually create the deepest silence that we can think of, but it's almost maddening or something like it that. Is, like if, you, yeah. if you're in there, people like go a little bit crazy. They do. That's what they say. Anechoic chambers is a great story. Justin, you want to share the cage story? Yeah. We write yeah. in the book about John Cage, who was this kind of experimental modernist composer 50, 60 years ago. And um, he once created a piece of music that was nothing but four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. But it wasn't to actually just give the piano player a break. It was designed for, it was written for an open air concert hall in Woodstock, New York, with the objective to bringing the audience's attention to the sound of the cicadas and the breezes and the branches on a summer evening. And he was inspired to write this piece of music when he went to one of those anechoic chambers that you're talking about. And the room was supposed to be totally silent, literally no, no vibration in the room was, was supposed to be allowed to enter. And when he got there, he heard two sounds. 
one high and one low. And he told the engineer who was in charge and he said, Hey, why wasn't this room like totally soundless as advertised? And he said, Oh, there was a meaning to those, to those noises, those sounds. The high one was your nervous system in operation. The low one was your blood in circulation. So we were, you know, we were really affected by this story. We're like, gosh, maybe this does mean there's no such thing as silence that a human being could experience. But as Lee described it, there is, it's, it's subjective. It's just not that there's an absolute absence of sound and stimulus. So, you know, in the journey of writing this book, we at first wanted to explore the meaning of silence, what total silence could do for a human being, why it's so important in this world of noise. But over time, we started to realize that silence is so subjective. And at one level, this wasn't going to be a book for people who wanted to totally flee all the sound and stimulus of the world. This wasn't a book for people who wanted to run off to monasteries. It's for people who want to find pockets of silence that brings healing and energy in a world that is thankfully buzzing and pulsating and singing and dancing. Yeah, I will be honest. I think every day about running off to a monastery. <laughs> it's like a dream of mine. I'm like, did I miss my window? Now I have a 13 month old. What age could maybe he come with me where we just go for like a year? Would my husband be on board? Like, right. <laughs> we hear you. <laughs> I, I think about it a, a lot. Maybe I missed a calling, but I do try to find these moments throughout the day of, of, stillness. And, and it's really difficult before we began this interview, I was kind of telling you, you know, we're doing this on nap time. I wake up early to get some writing done. I record in the first nap, interview the second nap. It's been a lot. And what's interesting is that some days I feel amazing about being able to get all of this done and still be a mom. And then other times I recognize, maybe it's just that I have too much awareness in my life, but I recognize the times that I'm in my baby's play zone and I'm also scrolling my phone. And so then I'll try to keep it far away, but then I'll be like, I'm getting bored. Like (laughs) I just, just bring it back for a little bit. Let me scroll through Amazon something. And so it's so difficult to detangle some of those mental addictions. And so when you think about weaving silence into the day, what do you think? And I know this is subjective. I was going to ask what you think is like a successful amount of daily silence, but is there a point where, okay, well, you only did a minute that's not nearly as helpful as five minutes versus 10 minutes. What should people shoot for to really feel the effects of silence woven into their lives? One thing I just want to say to you right now is that this entire book was written in those moments you're describing, kind of finding the the opening, the little pockets of silence available to us throughout a day. So it's, we didn't run off to some monastery to write this book. We stayed right in our lives and searched for those small pockets, how to, we studied how to turn down the noise in our lives, that auditory informational internal, we find those you know, pockets of silence and on occasion would find more rapturous and build into more rapturous silence in the various ways we find that in nature and in other ways we'll talk, we'll get into sooner. So, so just so that you know that, and it's just like what you're doing, we're on this path, we're trying to stay engaged in the world and our families do this and still find silence. And we believe that 
to be true, possible, and that that's a great source of energy and inspiration and all these things. So just starting there. <laughs> and then we turned to some of the ways that at least I used to find silence. I make a confession in the book that I used to smoke. And the confession isn't so much that I used to smoke. It's that I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I loved the soft kiss of the cigarette on my lips. I loved the first, the sizzle of the drag of that first drag. I loved inhaling deeply and exhaling deeply. I love the whole ritual, the, the smoke through the air, through the, through the sunbeams and the light shafts. And of course, I had to quit. I needed to quit. It was the right thing. But when I did quit, I lost those pockets of silence. So part of what this, this uh, book is looking at, there's a whole chapter called this healthy successor to the smoke break. How do we bring even just those little moments of silence back into our lives in some healthy way that doesn't involve inhaling carcinogens or spending all that money? And so just to find the more accessible ways. Yeah. What'd you add? Yeah. One thing, Melissa, that you're, what you just shared reminded me of is just that one of our original reasons for writing this book was so many friends of ours thinking about meditation and mindfulness and thinking of it as such a to-do, like, oh my God, why don't I meditate enough? I should be meditating more. Am I meditating enough? And in thinking about all the rising noise in this world, the auditory noise, the informational noise, and we show empirically through a lot of research in this book that the internal noise is on the rise too. We need strategies that people are actually going to employ, that people are actually going to use, and strategies that are fun, where people aren't asking themselves, oh my God, am I doing it right? Because silence is intuitive for people. Everyone in their own way knows what silence feels like. So as we explore these different strategies in the book, like Lee just mentioned, our healthy successors to the smoke break, we look at really simple approaches like the practice of just listening. Jay Newton Small is a friend of ours who was the Washington correspondent, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News and for Time Magazine for a time. And after long days of reporting, super intense, big egos and personalities in Washington, she'd get home to her apartment and sit on the couch and she would just listen to the silence. She would just listen to the ringing she would hear in her own ears and after about five minutes, usually, she'd notice the ringing would start to dissipate. And she'd notice that that ringing in her ears was almost like something residual from the stress of the day. And the act of just listening to the silence helped to resolve it. And after those five minutes, she'd go cook dinner. So we look at a lot of practices like that. You know, no fancy bells and cushions needed. You know, you don't have to go to the yoga studio, although if that's in your practice, that's wonderful. But we look at really simple practices for how to tune into silence, including silence in between the words and conversation, silence within the breath. And then as Lee mentioned, we look at what we call practices for finding the more rapturous silence, like what it would mean to take a day not talking or what it would mean to find some time to bring your to-do list to the most remote place in nature that you could reasonably get to, and then take a look at it and think about what really matters and cross a whole lot of it off. 
I would love to do that. <laughs> I'm in a mood. You. Yeah, yeah, we're catching you on the perfect day. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I it's just one of those days. I'm like PMSing. There's just mm-hmm. been a lot going on. I moved to the mountains a couple of years ago. And in general, it is much less noisy here than it was in the heart of LA or in Santa Monica, where I came from. And so I have really had to use those replacement models for my past addictions and all sorts of them. When you were describing your your love for smoking, I was thinking about my past love for wine. I mm-hmm. gave up drinking eight months ago. And just because I, I just am always asking myself, like, is this bettering my life or like, what is this to me? And I loved everything about it. Like, the wine tasting, picking out the bottle, pouring it in the glass, the swirl, like feeling fancy, a good patio. And <laughs> then when I stopped drinking that, I'm like, okay, now what do I swirl? You know, <laughs> like what's going to stain my teeth red today? I need something. Right. And so <laughs> I tried all of the replacement alcohol, the non-alcoholic versions of things. And what was Amazing was that I spent more money on non-alcoholic things for a good two months than I ever did on alcohol because I don't know, for some reason, fancy non-alcoholic stuff is like a $30 bottle, but it really helped at least to replace those things, but with a different intention, with different effects. And then I realized after a little bit, I didn't need that anymore I mm-hmm. because it wasn't I realized it wasn't the habit that was as addictive as I thought, because once once the actual addictive properties were gone, I was able to release that. But I've noticed that with so many things moving to this little town, like being reliant on Uber Eats or Uber or things going on everywhere. And now I go on long walks. And so I get these little meditative practices on my own just by being out walking. Or I used to always listen to the radio when when I would be in the car or Spotify, I suppose. And I remember one of my friends was like, I've been liking silence lately. And I'm like, what, you psychopath? (laughs) Now I'm like, (laughs) it's like, it takes a lot for me to turn on the music. I'd much rather just sit there (laughs) in the silence. And so I think for me, it's something that I've moved into. And it's like, if I can go one step, just a little less noise and a little less noise and a little less noise, it's not as stark of a contrast of like just all of a sudden being in the silent chamber and <laughs> and wondering what the hell you're doing there. Right. And you're getting to such a core idea in the book, Melissa, which is just the importance of appreciating silence, of actually appreciating it. We speak in the book with Judson Brewer, who's a neuroscientist at Brown University, a really pioneering leader in the study of the brain of meditators and really seeking to understand how it is that folks, when they're meditating, can really understand what's happening when they're getting beyond thoughts of the self, getting beyond anxious thoughts into a space of more spaciousness. And when we asked him for his definitions of noise and silence, he talked about noise as a state of contraction, and he talked about silence as a state of expansion. And what you were just saying, Melissa, reminded me that 
in our culture, we actually tend to celebrate, just like we celebrate noise, we celebrate these contracted states as ideas of happiness. You know, Dr. Brewer talked a lot about these contracted states as the dopamine states, you know, where we we amp up our excitement. And that's the idea of being happy most of the time. But what we explore in the book is that there's also a deeper, more spacious, more expansive conception of happiness. There's another way to find the meaning of happiness that's less about the noise and contraction and more about the expansion and the silence. So it's almost like that sitting in the car without music or without a phone call or, you know, for me, without refreshing my email to see, you know, what's popped up in there, you know, not seeking that dopamine hit that, you know, the big tech industrial complex has, you know, wired us to seek so much and so many other forces in the structure of our society have wired us to seek how to look for a different kind of well-being and happiness. So when we're looking for a new kind of well-being and happiness, that goes against seemingly everything that we're taught by society is valuable. I was just reading the Daily Stoic this morning and today's little message was around like, is it so controversial to say that what we're told is valuable might not be valuable at all. (laughs) And it's like staying busy, like a busy day is considered like you won the day, you slayed the day or whatever. And so Where does someone start to find this new meaning if everything around us is telling us something different? That's beautiful. Back us up through silence a little bit. We're talking about silence as the absence of noise first and foremost, that that noise in our ears, noise in our screens or on our screens and noise in our minds. But as we get deeper and deeper into silence. And I think we get into the space of where you're, where these questions that you're posing can be answered. And that's where silence is. We experience it as a presence unto itself. So it's not just the absence of noise, although it is that, but a presence unto itself. And that presence, that space where there can be pristine attention, where you can ask yourselves sometimes difficult questions, like, what do I really want? Is this what I want? Is this what my heart yearns for? Or as Patrick Otuma, the poet and theologian says, you can ask yourself the really strange questions when you're in that space. <laughs> you know, that maybe the totally, the thing that's the elephant in the room questions, like you were talking about, you know, is this drinking, this ritual of drinking really serving me, my higher purpose, my reason for being here is ritualized and beautiful and celebrated as it is. And me too, I quit drinking like eight years ago now. It's been a joy and brought a lot of quiet. Um, Gordon Hempton, the acoustic ecologist uh, who's gone all over the world to record quiet spaces for us and create this incredible archive of spaces, of, uh, of recordings of these quiet spaces. He defines this silence as presence place as time undisturbed. And he calls it the think tank for the soul. So in the think tank for the soul, so much can be revealed to us, what's working and what's not working. Maybe a sense for our sphere of control in that 
what, what is within our control about that? Maybe it's what's in our sphere of influence and then maybe that which is outside of our sphere of control. So a lot gets revealed in that space, we believe. Yeah, I have been really diving into a lot of works by Greg Braden. Have you guys ever read books by him? Super amazing. There's uh, two in particular that I just have found really meaningful. One of them is a physical book that I'm reading simultaneously with some audio lectures. For listeners out there, there's an app called Libby that actually allows you to get your local library card and download free audiobooks or books. And so sometimes they have things that Audible or Kindle doesn't have, like, like specific lectures. So there's these lectures where he talks about Zero Point and his book, The Divine Matrix. But what they're all kind of coming down to is really we're bridging where we can bridge science and spirituality and saying how even back in Albert Einstein, along with like every historical spiritual tradition back to the ancient Essenes who almost every spiritual tradition is based off of there's, there's some sort of teachings that were influenced by the Essenes original traditions, but long story short, they all come back to the idea that there's intelligence in the space between and really in everything. And so it's he calls it the divine matrix and and how it's actually an intelligent field and so something about the way he delivers this information has made me think differently about the silence about just sitting there and like okay well do i trust myself enough to come up with these answers which was a whole journey in itself i am at that point now it was not in the beginning of my spiritual journey i'm like what am i waiting for am i going to hear a booming voice what is it and then you hear about people accessing the akashic records like this this realm of of infinite information that it's all like the collective information from all of us or about information like what we learned from the heart math institute where we're each emitting these electromagnetic fields and so while we think about sitting in silence and doing nothing, it's not that at all. We're constantly transmitting and receiving intelligent information. And what happens if for a moment we're not turning to Netflix in our boredom and instead we're turning to the infinite, we're turning to the divine, we're realizing our power of feeling and harnessing how we're able to change our own electromagnetic frequency so that we actually impact the people around us. And so there's just something more motivating about it when I look at it that way. I love that, Melissa. And I love how you just frame that in terms of this question, do I trust myself enough? You know, do I trust the empty space? Do I trust what will be revealed in the empty space? You know, it comes back to the beginning of our conversation of like, why there's this addiction to noise. I think, you know, to what you just said reminds me that it might be a lack of trust in the ineffable trust in the empty space. In the book, we write quite a bit about a Japanese ancient aesthetic principle called ma. And ma is sometimes described as negative space, but it's also described as pure potentiality. It's the space in between words. It's the white space on a painting in between the strokes of ink. It's the places in between the notes and the music. It comes from Japanese agricultural traditions in ancient days of the space between the plants seated between the the crops and the the kanji character for ma is a combination of the characters for gate and sun so the image ma the idea of ma is really 
meant to evoke this beautiful image of golden light streaming through the slats in the entrance to a temple gate. And this idea of Ma is the idea of cherishing the space between words and conversation, cherishing the space between pieces of music, cherishing the space between moments and meetings and gatherings in the day and and all of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we describe in the book uh, what we call momentary ma, which is how we can appreciate those spaces in our lives, in the workplace, maybe between the Zoom meetings or at a more micro level, even finding the space between the breaths, like I mentioned before. But then we zoom all the way out in this book and we have a chapter called Ma Goes to Washington. And we imagine what would it look like if you actually had this principle of appreciating the negative space applied to public policy and applied to culture writ large. And we actually look at policy design that would be useful, that would be effective if we actually held that this kind of pristine human attention is a public good, is something that irrespective of political ideology or someone's background and training or whatever it might be, that we all have this fundamental need for Ma in our lives, for our health and our clarity and our equilibrium. Speaking of health, I know that we've talked a lot about, you know, just finding stillness, mindfulness, silence in the way that we think of, of just as kind of clearing the clutter of our mind or, or decreasing our thought load. I know so much of our suffering just comes from our thoughts, but you mentioned something in the book that I found really interesting. You said that noises cause stress, especially if we have little or no control over them. The body will excrete stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol that lead to changes in the composition of our blood and of our blood vessels, which actually have been shown to be stiffer after a single night of noise exposure. So this abundance of noise that we have in our lives, it's not just like causing us to be busier or to be a little bit more stressed. It's actually changing the composition of our blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that we love about this is we call this chapter that you're pointing us towards Florence Nightingale would be pissed because (laughs) this has been known for some time. And here she is 150 years ago. She was speaking about the problems with noise, not just on that physiological level, but also when, say, a person's case was uh, being discussed just out of earshot, so just out of intelligibility. So she's actually talking about that internal noise and the distress there, as well as the concern with the physical body and the ability to heal. In this chapter, we have a um, a longtime meditator, Faith Fuller, who asked the question, because she was in a, a horrible car accident. She's a lifetime meditator in a horrible car accident when she was in a busy spell, rushing from one thing to another, not to say it was her fault, but she remembers it being a very busy time. And she sustained a really severe brain injury. And we spoke with her about that. And one of the questions she was really interested in is the biological basis for the power of silence to heal, because that's what she found is that silence was one of those primary healers in her recovery. She was in the ICU and they kept the lights dim. They kept their voices to a whisper. 
they limited and it wasn't hard at first at all um, her you know access to technology or smartphone but as she came online more she got a little kind of grabby for well maybe I should I, I should see about that trip to Europe I had planned or does she noticed the noise in her brain come online in that habitual type of way and again being that experienced meditator she tracked all of it like initially the accident was so severe that all there was was quiet all there was was this like cottony wool wrapped around kind of place of healing but as she got better the noise in her mind got louder <laughs> and so she she takes us through that journey in such a clear way and yeah we look at that that and then what happens how why is it that silence is so healing what is it that might be happening in the brain. So there's this um, study out of Duke University, Ernka Christie, they look at mice and they put them in those little anechoic chambers you were talking about that John Cage was in, imagine a tiny one with mice inside. <laughs> so limiting all this outside interference, outside noise and putting them in, they piped in like little pup sounds, they piped in uh, Mozart. <laughs> and then they also used, as is often the case, silence as sort of a baseline and it was silence where the they noticed a growth a sustained cell growth in, in the neurons in the mice so that this idea that there was a type of well actually Ermka Christie surmised that that might be because of the stress but a good type of stress this positive type of stress where it's an unfamiliar thing but you're growing into that that space of silence and we just found that to be an incredible place of inquiry to, to what if, you know, to look into. It's really one of the key insights we found in this book is that the simple act of listening to silence regenerates the brain. What's interesting to me is that there are so many different modes of finding this stillness. Like you can be deep in meditation in the middle of the forest. You can be in this chamber. You can be just actively listening to the ringing in your ears. <laughs> and none of them are, well, other than the chamber, none of them are true silence, as you said, but it's it's a break from the normal that we're, that we're usually doing. And another thing that you guys brought up that I found really interesting is that there's something active about listening to nothing. It's not just zoning out. It's a positive sort of exertion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about Pythagoras, who's an ancient Greek philosopher who, for some people, evokes feelings of terror from middle school math class of having to remember the theorem for figuring out the long side of a right triangle. But we discovered in our research all of this that Pythagoras brought us in math and science. And, you know, he was this brilliant philosopher and the leader of this really extraordinary mystery school of different scholars and, and contemplatives in ancient Greece. And he told his students to let your quiet mind listen and absorb the silence. That was his message to his students about how to find wisdom. And it's a little extreme, but he made his inner circle of students thousands of years ago actually sit for five years alone in silence if they wanted to be a member of his inner circle. So we explore in the book, I mean, obviously, we're not asking anybody to do that. Again, this is not a book for monastics, but we we ask our readers in the book to join us in a kind of thought experiment or really more of a feeling experiment of what would that be like 
how would that change the architecture of your mind if you were to spend five years in silence? Again, we're not recommending anyone do it, but what we notice as we do this kind of feeling experiment is that we notice that the little things in our lives that we think are really important aren't, and the mind tunes toward truth. Yeah. It's like, who would you be without the noise is such an interesting question. How much of you is just a, I mean, so much of us is, is a, an amalgamation of just everything going on around us. I remember learning a long, long time ago, that phrase, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And it's funny because that's come back up in my mind throughout just my years of getting older. And it seems to mean something sort of different to me every time I I think about it. And one of the things that why it keeps coming up now is, is that I have realized that the more time I spend in silence, the more I actually connect with who I am versus who I'm told to be or who I see other people being or what I'm told to value what I'm told is important or urgent or the next cool thing. (laughs) And you don't even realize that you're chasing certain things until you have a moment to yourself, a long enough moment to actually start asking yourself these questions and see what comes up. And I will say in the very beginning, it tends to be a lot of the regurgitated information that you've heard over and over again. The more that you do it, it's like, is that really true? And the more you challenge those thoughts, then you you can come to your own baseline of like, oh, this is where I'm starting. So I can imagine five years without any of the, that noise. I don't know why I'm like really wanting to go move to like be a monk in India this week. <laughs> this is my primary goal. So if this episode doesn't air and I disappear, <laughs> tell my husband where to find me. <laughs> Absolutely. You tell him. It'll be broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> But it is important to to think about the fact that every spiritual tradition does come back to honoring silence as a path towards truth. And our inner truth that we end up finding, I think, is also it's also a part of this universal truth that gets lost in the busyness of our day to day and like we talked about the evolving values of mm-hmm. society that really come back to likely capitalism. <laughs> so I'm wondering for a busy individual, we touched on it a little bit before, but I'm wondering if you have any practice that a listener can can keep in their mind for this week to deepen their practice in honoring that silence. Well, we do look at some of those smaller practices and we've touched on some just that like, you know, keeping these ideas bite-sized at first that we just listen and tune in. Sometimes it's like stuff just happens to us, right? The radio, the car radio, well, mine used to just get stolen, right? And suddenly, ah, now I've got a silent commute. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I do remember like your friend, you know, enjoying it and being like, oh, how interesting. I mean, I didn't love that my window was broken and my car, my stereos yanked out. But in the end, I was like, well, do I really replace it? Especially if it's just going to be yanked out again. (laughs) So um, we call that little gifts of silence. So maybe you find yourself in a long line or your smartphone is cracked and you can't really use it or you know, your stereo has been yanked out of your car. What's the gift in that? Can you find the gift and connect with silence in that moment? It's a teacher out of the Netherlands who taught us that. She works with a lot of CEOs who 
have the fantasy that they're in control of everything. But here is a time, you know, these are the kinds of times when we are reminded um, sometimes harshly that we're not in control all the time. But what she urges them to remember is that that is a moment where they can take control and connect to silence and reground and regroup and uh, find their way again. I'm reminded with this question of the man who's really the heart and soul of this book, Jarvis J. Masters, who's someone who spent 30 years now on death row in San Quentin prison for a crime that the preponderance of the evidence all shows that he didn't commit. And he's been in legal limbo for all these years as his cases worked through all the appeals processes. And in that time, he's become a renowned meditation teacher. And it was such an unlikely thing. And he did it. And he's taken vows with Tibetan lamas, and now published two books from prison. And he showed us, you know, through visits and, and through conversations with him on the phone from his cell that, you know, the noise in prison is crazy. It's like, you know, lo-fi radios playing party beats and sports commentary and people screaming and yelling and trash talk. It's so loud. And as he tells us, it's also this vibration of fear, this angst and uncertainty and state-sanctioned death and violence And he does the work of finding silence. And to your question, deepening the everyday silence in one of the noisiest places imaginable in terms of the auditory, informational, and internal noise. So he takes us through what's in his sphere of control and what's in his sphere of influence in his everyday life amidst this noise in San Quentin. And sometimes it's really little things, like when there's a big sports game happening and the guys are allowed to watch, he'll take that time, you know, even if he wants to watch, he'll savor that time alone when no one's calling out his name. And he'll take some time and he'll study astronomy, or he'll take some time with Buddhist text or to meditate. But the really interesting part in working with Jarvis and talking to him, you know, over time and writing this book and getting to know him is that he tells us about how he works to quiet the noise around him by quieting quietening his responses to the noise. He looks at how he's reacting to the noise in his life and how that provokes reactions in his own consciousness. And he tells us about how when he focuses his compassion on other people, he finds that things quiet down. We asked him, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? Lee, you want to tell that story? Mm, yeah, Jarvis was at first San Quentin, uh, did not have any COVID cases when the pandemic broke out uh, miraculously. And then they started moving some prisoners around inexplicably and, and, San, and San Quentin became just overrun with COVID. And he and his neighbor were two of the first to get it. And it was a really stressful thing. Of course, there was so much unknown in all of this, and it would actually turn out that his neighbor would be the first to die of COVID. So he spent a lot of time trying to comfort and console his neighbor and through this terrifying experience. Um, he tells us of, a, of when the doctors, the physicians were circling around with different medicines, and he remembers being handed a bottle that had all kinds of side effects listed pains in the here and like numbness and this, then he was reading this really closely and thinking, what am I, what is this, (laughs) what is this medicine now? What is this curing me? I mean, what is it going to give me? And um, 
then he and he said to himself, "This medicine's going to kill me." And as he thought about that, this voice came in that said, "It's not about you right now." Now Jarvis has a deep practice of compassion, and uh, you know, rooted in the Tibetan Buddhist practice. And he was immediately aware of all the people in that moment all over the globe with COVID, the mothers helping their sick children and not knowing how serious this was, people with pre-existing conditions. He didn't have that many of, you know, all the suffering that was going on that he was now suddenly connected to. And that awareness quieted him, his ability to be with the compassion and with the severity of that situation, but not have it be all about him, not have it be all, you know, his inner worries and concerns quieted him. And so we were surprised that when we asked him, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? That was the story he shared. And so with all of this, Melissa, this, you know, this excellent question you asked about how to deepen the practice in the day-to-day, you know, it's not always just about how do I schedule time for pockets of silence? That's important. But in all these dozens of interviews with these extraordinary and extraordinarily diverse people in writing this book, we found that the common denominator to all these varieties of deep silence was the absence of thought of the self. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of this one of the times I did ayahuasca, actually. And the shaman that was guiding us through said, you know, people are going to be making sounds and they're having their own experience. and in a moment, you may want silence and feel like it's pulling you out of it, but ask yourself, maybe this is just what I need. And I think about that a lot. I I was just reading a story of somebody who had a guru and they were learning this deep meditation and their guru told them to actually, when he got to a certain level, meditate on the corner of New York, like the busiest corner in New York until you find your own silence. And he mm. did. And it took him like months, but then all of a sudden the peace was there. Mm. And so there's so often where I'm like, okay, I want my specific meditation pillow with my noise canceling headphones and my eye mask on and the perfect app. <laughs> and I, I remember getting to a point and being like, well, now I have all these dependencies around how I can find this peace. So can I remove one at a time? And so whether you're in an airplane and the person next behind you is kicking your seat or or you're in on the highway somebody cuts you off or somebody your kids are screaming at you i think in that is where we can find our lessons and rather than saying well i don't have the perfect situation to find this silence then just say this is what the universe is giving me right now and so this is my mission this is where i should try to find my silence so Thank you so much for all of the research that you put into this topic and just kind of drilling it down. It's like we hear about meditation and mindfulness and all that, but I love how just focused this is and just that silence and that stillness that we can all benefit from so much. So for listeners that want to dive deeper, where's the best place for them to connect and to find your book? Well, it's uh, we're being published through HarperCollins here in the United States and Penguin in the UK. So um, finding our book site there where all kinds of vendors are selling the book is a good place to go. And then the two of us can be found together at astrayastrategies.com. And we're on LinkedIn and we're kind of quiet on social media, but if you find us, you're, we'll, we'll connect. <laughs> 
perfectly on brand though. <laughs> exactly. That's what we told them. That is what we told them. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x82. I bet you know what your challenge for this week is going to be. Yep, it's to find little moments of silence for yourself. So instead of automatically turning on Spotify in the car or playing a podcast after you listen to this one, of course, (laughs) try to sit in that silence. And there are a number of ways that you can play in the silence. I'll give you my top three. The first one is just to let my thoughts untangle. I just sit there and I let my thoughts run wild, see where they take me. One piece of mindfulness that I bring to this practice if I do it is that I don't allow myself to ruminate for too long. It's like, yeah, think about all the options, let them untangle, but don't give more power to them than they need to have. That's when you get caught up in worrying, in regret, in what I should have said, and it's not super healthy. There's not a lot of benefit to staying there. So there is some mindfulness in letting your thoughts just run wild. If you notice that you feel negatively, that you're getting yourself worked up or more stressed out, that's when it's time to take a step back and move to another mode of playing in the silence. My second favorite way of playing in the silence is by getting really intentional, consciously creating my thoughts allowing myself to daydream and to envision what my perfect life looks like, what my business looks like. It's almost a form of manifesting. But you don't always have to think about manifesting as like somehow creating out of thin air something that you want. I like to use it to manifest how I want to feel, which is actually one of the most powerful ways that you actually manifest in the first place. And so I sit there and I consciously think about people that I love, moments that I love, with an intention to amplify those feelings within my body. And once I get to that place, then thinking about how I want to envision my life, how I want to envision the next move of my business, or how this move is going to turn out, whatever it is. And then the last way is to just hold space as like a meditation, being an empty vessel for whatever wisdom comes through in that silence. This is generally how people get to the point of channeling. Or it could be a whole other thing that you do in the silence. That's the thing. In the silence, there is enough space to choose what you please. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right here on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash x82. If you'd love to support Mind Love, the best way to do that is by joining Mind Love Premium, where you get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive premium episodes not available anywhere else. You also get an ad-free listening experience, as well as early release sometimes when I have my shit together, (laughs) and other bonuses. Sometimes you'll notice parts of interviews are left for the premium members. So that's at mindlove.com slash premium. You can also support one of my amazing sponsors or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you do, I just might read your review on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.